This message is brought to you by Mill City Church in Lowell, Massachusetts. For more information, please visit millcitychurch.net. It's been a good Sunday already, right? So thankful for this team and the different team members who lead us corporately in musical worship week in and week out. I want you guys to know that we're thankful for you and how you help facilitate an environment uh, by which the Lord may engage our hearts and we may engage his. So I pray that you've been encouraged this morning as we worship the Lord uh, via music and we'll do so a little bit more before we leave today. Well, this morning, if you're excited about studying God's word together, say amen. Amen. All right, that sounds really good. That jazzes me up a little bit. All right, let's turn to Matthew chapter 4. This morning, we're going to begin our summer teaching series, which if you can uh, look at your worship guides or you look at the screens behind me, you see that this summer's teaching series is called Encounters with Jesus. Encounters with Jesus. And so what we're going to be doing over the course of the next three months is we are going to be looking at different passages through one of the Gospels. And we're going to be looking at instances where Jesus Christ, the King of the universe, the Lord of all lords, entered into human existence and had an actual exchange with a real live human being. And if you see the tagline there up under that title, it says, when the ordinary meets the extraordinary. Because as you make your way through the Gospels of Jesus Christ, you will find account after account of Jesus Christ, this extraordinary, sovereign Lord, encountering and engaging very average, ordinary of ordinary people. But when he does that, these ordinary people's lives are radically changed. And this is encouraging for us today because I'm not sure that if you've looked in the mirror lately and recognized this, but both you and I are also very average of ordinary people, right? I mean, that's who we are. I mean, we, we look here and we recognize that if we live 75, 80, 90 years on this earth, that probably in another century, there are very few people who will ever even remember our names. And so the very fact that Jesus Christ sought to engage the average person, the ordinary man, the ordinary woman, should encourage people like you and me today. But When you look at our culture that we live in today, we're not a culture that celebrates the average. We're not a culture that celebrates the ordinary. As a matter of fact, we're a culture who very much esteems the celebrity. And in reality, thanks to social media outlets like Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, or YouTube, you could live in obscurity today and go viral tomorrow morning. Just have a cat that plays piano or baby who does something really crazy with food, and you could get a million or two hits, and before you know it, people are advertising on your account, and you show up on CNN. But we're not a culture that celebrates obscurity. We're not a culture that celebrates average or ordinary, and even you come to the church, the pastors who are considered the most authoritative, the pastors who are most listened to, are the ones with the most podcasts downloaded, or the most books written, or those who have preached in front of the largest crowds. 
But as we're going to see in the text, Jesus constantly interrupted the lives of very ordinary people like you or me. And once these average ordinary people encountered the extraordinary sovereign Lord, their lives would forever be changed. Their passions would be different. Their goals would redirect and their allegiances would shift. And I want you to know this morning, and this is where 2,000 years ago meets today. The very same thing is true today. The reality this morning is that Jesus Christ is still interrupting average, ordinary lives. And just like you and just like me, when he interrupts, and when we hear his radical truth like we're going to hear today, our lives should never be the same. Our life goals should redirect. Our passions should change. And our allegiances should also shift. Such was the case with the first century disciples. This morning, we are going to study the encounter between Jesus and his first disciples. Those first disciples whom he had called. We're going to see two sets of brothers. We're going to see Peter and Andrew. We're going to see James and John. Average, ordinary, lower middle class fishermen working for their dads. And in Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 18, here's what the gospel writer Matthew writes. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. If I were to ask you the question this morning, what does it mean to follow Jesus? I'm sure that there would be a plethora of different responses. Perhaps we would say something about, well, you have to read your Bible every day, or you have to come to church every week, or you have to volunteer, or, or give to the poor, or maybe you only listen to, to worship music now, or we only shop at Christian bookstores, or shop from Christian uh, store owners. I mean, th there could be a vast array of responses to that question. But this small paragraph nestled at the beginning of the book of Matthew and this exchange between Jesus and four average ordinary brothers is going to illuminate to us some very radical truths this morning that should really turn our idea of what it means to follow Jesus upside down. And I have to be honest with you this morning, and if you've been around me for a while, you know that this is one of my favorite paragraphs in all the scriptures. It's one of my favorite paragraphs to teach. It's one of my favorite paragraphs to preach. But it's also one of the hardest paragraphs to teach and preach. But let me tell you why it's so important to me. It's because God used this paragraph to literally change my life. And he used this paragraph to change my life several years into my Christian discipleship. I had been a follower of Jesus for about, uh, probably around nine or ten years. When I heard this passage preached, and I'd never heard it preached this way before, 
And God just opened the, the eyes of my heart in ways. And, and just the, the scales just fell off of my eyes. And there was a confluence of events that happened around that same amount of time where God just used this passage very directly in my life. A couple of things. I had read this and, and heard this sermon series on this passage. And then number two, I had read what would be one of the most formative and seminal books I've ever read in my life. A little short one. We have it back there on our bookshelves. You're welcome to go grab a copy today. It's called Master Plan of Evangelism, like you've never heard that title come out of my mouth before. I had read that, and then on top of that, I had gone overseas to East Asia to share the gospel with unreached people groups for the very first time in my life. And what God did is he took all of this confluence of events and my idea about following Jesus would never be the same. My idea of Christian discipleship would not be the same. And since that time, several years ago, what God did is he brought me back. And I attached myself to a group of guys. And over the course of the last 10 to 15 years of my life, I've chosen to pour my life into younger guys who I would then pass on the gospel, pass on the word of God to and equip them and empower them to do the same thing in other people's lives. And what I wanted to show to you today, in the lives of these men, born out through and then followed uh, for 2,000 years, what it truly means to follow Jesus. And today's message is going to hit a couple of different groups of people in different ways. They're going to be those who you think you've got the gospel, and you think you know what it means to follow Jesus, because you've made some sort of commitment to a church at some time and you've bettered your life. And following Jesus just simply means having some twist on the Christian version twist of the American dream. And you've been in the church your entire life or for a season in your life or you're seeking moral improvement. It's going to really hit that group of people because you're going to hear a gospel that sometimes we don't always hear in the American church. But then there are also those who definitely have followed Jesus and, and you're walking with Jesus and you want to honor Jesus with your life. But for some reason, there have just been some disconnects with Christian mission and Christian discipleship with you. And today could be the day where the scales would fall off your eyes and, and you would go from being spectator to being participant in the mission of God and Christian discipleship. But regardless from where you're coming, I pray today that you would allow these radical truths to hit your heart and allow this sovereign, extraordinary Lord to interrupt your average, ordinary life today. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? For some of you, this is going to be review. For others of you, this is going to be vastly new. But I want to show you three words this morning from this text and three radical truths that come from those words and the first word I want you to see today is abandon. Abandon. These first century disciples learned what the word abandon meant in conscious experience. And here's what it meant. It, may, it means this. We have found something worth losing everything else for. We have found something worth losing everything for. Here's the kicker. In verse 19, he looks at these guys. And he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately the passage tells us they left their nets and followed him. 
And going on, when you look at James and John, he makes the same call, follow me. And what is the response? Immediately in verse 22, they left the boat and their father and followed him. What is it that would cause these average, ordinary fishermen to drop everything and follow what at this point would have been simply an itinerant preacher going from village to village preaching about the kingdom? What is it that would make them do that? It's because they had found something that was so much more valuable than what they were raised with. So much more valuable and precious than their culture had passed on to them. And it was the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now I want you to know that if you make your way through the gospels, we, we get this picture. This is not an isolated incident in whence, where Jesus simply makes this big clarion radical call and using the terminology of all or the idea of abandon. In Matthew chapter 13 and verse 44, when Jesus gives us the parable of the, the great pearl of price, or the, the treasure hidden in the field, this is what Jesus says about the kingdom. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and then covered up, then in his joy goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. You turn over to the book of Luke. In the book of Luke, there's, an incident, there's a, a passage that talks about the high cost of discipleship in Luke chapter 9. And then a few verses later in Luke chapter 9, multiple people encounter Jesus and say they basically want to follow him. And I want you to see what Jesus does here. In Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 57, I'm going to read through this and I'll make a couple of comments. Beginning in verse 57, it says this. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Zealous, right? And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus, I will go with you wherever. I will follow you. Okay, but just know I'm homeless. And that means that you may be homeless too. Verse 59, to another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, this just sounds real insensitive, doesn't it? But these are the words of our Savior himself. Verse 61, yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. That's a very reasonable request. Jesus, I will go on mission with you. I will go to the utter ends of the planet with you. I will do anything with you. Just first, let me go home and say goodbye to my mom and my dad. And Jesus said to him in verse 62, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is Jesus Christ, ladies and gentlemen. You go over to Luke chapter 14. Beginning in verse 25, it says, Now great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and said to him, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. For whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Reading through all of these accounts, 
leads us to ask the question, how good at church growth really was Jesus? I mean, what a contrast, right? I mean, we live in a culture where we are trying as best we can to make the gospel most palatable to the widest audience possible. True? I mean, we are trying to come up with every illustration and every art of persuasion so that more people will come into the kingdom and more people will fill our pews. And I want you to know there's a lot that can be said about that that is a good thing. But just a cursory reading of those texts, brothers and sisters, it almost seems like Jesus was trying to convince people not to follow him rather than trying to persuade them to follow him because he wants them to count the cost. We're going to clear some of this up in just a moment. Let the tension be there. If you're feeling tension in your heart right now, I want you to know that that's a good, gracious thing of God. Let there be tension. We'll resolve it in a moment. Now go back to Matthew 4 and these first disciples. Jesus is walking alongside the Sea of Galilee. Peter Andrew, James, and John are all going about their normal, everyday duties, working in the family business. They're not bothering anybody. They're minding their own business, literally. And Jesus approaches them with a command. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately, they drop everything, and they follow Jesus. Here's what we learn here. In order to follow Jesus, we leave behind all things. We leave behind all things. We leave behind our comfort. These guys were about to enter into a world that was very uncomfortable. The world in which they lived, working for Daddy Zebedee, may not have been a perfect world, but it was a comfortable world. It's what they knew. It's what they could expect. And now they just signed on to follow this Jesus, and they had no idea what they were signing up for. We leave behind our comfort. We leave behind our careers. Being a fisherman is all they ever knew. These guys weren't like our, first, our 21st century world. These guys weren't gonna go off to Nazareth, you or Jerusalem State in order to find themselves and change their major three different times to discover what they were good at. No, they were born into a fisherman's family, so a fisherman they would be. It's all they knew. And Jesus says, follow me. And they drop the nets. They drop their careers. They follow Jesus. We leave behind our possessions. The American dream says, you climb the corporate ladder. You invest in your 401k. And you graduate from apartment to townhouse to single family to mansion as quickly as you can. You go from the Toyota to the Mercedes. Spend your wealth amass wealth here on earth. You come to Jesus, you lose your possessions because you start living for something greater than simply yourself. We leave behind our positions. We leave behind our families, our friends. Now, does this mean we literally sign up to follow Jesus and we just leave mom and dad or we kick the kids out of the house or, or we literally go slap our moms and dads in the face? No, not at all. God is actually pro-family. He did create the family after all. But what it does mean is our allegiances shift. Our families are no longer the centers of our universe. Our moms and dads, our kids, they're great gifts from God Almighty. But could we just be fair today 
that in the United States of America, that the family is one of the things that we idolize and we worship. We just simply do. Because we take the gifts of God and we make them God ourselves. Themselves. We, we make them ultimate. As a matter of fact, I want you to think about it this way. Think about the thing or the person or the persons in your life that mean more to you than anything else. You see, there's the possibility that the thing that means most to us and more to us than anything else, it's always on the verge of becoming a god. Always on the verge of becoming an idol. And what Jesus is telling these first century disciples as he tells you and me today, you come to me, your allegiances shift. You come to me, you no longer live for yourself. You come to me, nothing else, no one else on earth is ultimate. I am. And you must be willing to leave all of that behind for the sake of living for one thing. You see, we leave behind all things in order to live for one thing. And that one thing is to now follow Jesus. And here is the way in which I would describe it. And I don't think this describes it perfectly. But if you still have that tension of, okay, what exactly does this mean, Chris? I really believe this kind of encapsulates it. As we're walking through this earth apart from Jesus, the only eyes through which we can see our lives and pursue our life goals are our sinful, natural eyes that we have. And it's what we have been, what has been instilled within us from our culture, from our rearing, from a human-centered standpoint. But when we come to Jesus, what he does, and we surrender to him, he gives us new eyes. He gives us new glasses. He gives us new lenses through which now I see and interpret everything else around me. My career, my passions, my possessions, my friends, my family. He now turns my world upside down because I now have, and this may get a little crazy, but it's like I have a Jesus spiritual decoder glasses. And I now view everything through his lens. But through the eyes of the world, it looks distorted. His lens looks weird. His lens doesn't look right. His lens even seems wrong. But through the Spirit of God, it's very right, and it's very good. I want to ask you a question this morning. What would happen if you, this morning, actually sought to live like this? What would happen this morning if you literally stopped and said, I don't want to simply view life through my own eyes anymore. I, I want to put on the eyes of Jesus, and I want to see the world, see my relationship, and see my pursuits through his lenses. Well, for one, I'm going to tell you, your friends, your family, your co-workers are going to think that you're a freak. They're going to think that you're radical. They're going to think that something is wrong with you. They're going to call you an extremist, a religious zealot, a religious radical. Even your own family is going to question your involvement. Why do I know this? Because I experience it every year as we invest in so many students. There are so many students who will repent of their sins and place faith in Jesus. And mom and dad get really excited about that because they want to see their child. They want to see their son or their daughter making good choices. And they don't want to see them in jail. They don't want to see them being in immorality. 
But then there's a rub that comes somewhere around October when they go home one weekend and they say, I want you to know about an awesome opportunity I have to go and share the gospel on the other side of the planet with unreached people groups in East Asia over Christmas break this Christmas. Do you know what one of the biggest challenges our Christian disciples have in our ministry in pursuing Jesus on mission? is convincing their Christian parents that they should be away from the precious holiday of Christmas in the United States of America and to be away from their family during that time. And I don't want to minimize the sacrifice. And I don't want to minimize the difficulty that may come from that. But it shows how from a Western mentality, we are looking at the kingdom of God upside down when what Jesus wants to do is to turn our kingdoms upside down in order to live for his. So the question this morning is, have you abandoned? Have you abandoned it all to follow Jesus? Have you found something worth losing everything else for? The great missionary Jim Elliott knew this well. The great missionary Jim Elliott, who was killed by the very people he was seeking to evangelize and change their lives, he said this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain what he can never lose. These disciples learned the word abandon. We have found something worth losing everything else for. But there's a second word that we learn in this text. We learn the word authority. We learn the word authority. Not only have we found something worth losing everything else for, we have also encountered someone worth surrendering everything to. I want you to think about this for a moment. Why is it that these fishermen would leave everything at once and follow this man named Jesus? It's not by accident that Matthew, this gospel writer, who was writing to a primarily Jewish audience would include in verse 22 that James and John immediately left the boat and their father and followed Jesus. Why? Well, some of it's because of what I've already talked about, that this is all these guys ever knew, that this was the family business. But you see, the first century Jewish world was just as pro-family and family-centered as our 21st century world. And that on, its, uh, and, and, and on the uh, surface level is a very good thing. But To walk away from dad. Think about this. These guys just dropped the nets. They quit the family business on the spot. In order to follow an itinerant stranger. That some people didn't even really know who he was. Some people had never even heard of him. But James and John say, I'm with Jesus. Metaphorically speaking sociologically speaking, they slap their dad in the face. They majorly disrespect their father in order to follow this man named Jesus. Why would they do that? I mean, did they have some sort of blind trust or taste for adventure? Perhaps they would have been good candidates for a survivor or naked and afraid? Or were they just that irresponsible? In this account, don't miss this. This is true for you and for me today. The basis for the disciples' reckless abandon was not so much in what they were doing, but who was doing the calling. 
It's because the man who called them had unspeakable authority. The scriptures talk about this, that Jesus did not teach, he did not speak, he did not carry himself like the religious scribes or the religious Pharisees, but this was a man who spoke and acted with authority. And so when Jesus spoke, you listened. Even those who disagreed with him, even those who didn't like him, they found out they couldn't ignore him. And the reality is, the disciples had, it's, it's believed by a lot of theologians, you can look at John chapter 1, that James and John, that they had come to follow Jesus probably about a year before he made this call. And so it was very much true that they had heard about Jesus, they had heard his teaching, and they had heard him from a distance and there were crowds who were starting to follow Jesus and buy in to what he was teaching and what he was communicating. But you see, on this day, on this Sunday afternoon, as they were working, his call went from the crowds to their person. It went from hypothetically out there to now close to home. Jesus called their names And the moment he said, follow me, not follow a cause, not follow an idea, not just adopt a religion, not better yourself, but come follow me. They drop everything and follow Jesus. He is personally inviting them to himself, just as he does with you and me today. Now, what does it look like to do this? Well, a couple of things. One We commit to him in relationship. This is the process of bowing to the authority of Jesus. We commit to him in relationship. Again, follow me. Now that term follow carries the idea of following as a disciple who is committed to imitating the one whom he is following. And so there's a very relational bent to this. They didn't just find a podcast on the internet and say, oh man, I think we're going to follow this guy just from a distance. No, there was a relational element of this. So we commit to him in relationship. For some of us, we don't get this. There could be some of us in this room that only see Christianity as a religion that I need to pursue. A box that I check. It's a compartmental room that I'm in for an hour and a half on Sunday morning, but it is disconnected from the rest of my life. But what Jesus is calling them to is a new life, a new way of living, of following and abiding in him for all the days of their lives. I have an extended quote here from David Platt, who is the president of our International Mission Board, who writes and speaks extensively on disciple-making and discipleship. Follow along with me in your your hearts as I read this out loud. He says, With these two simple words, follow me, Jesus made clear that his primary purpose was not to instruct his disciples in a prescribed religion. His primary purpose was to invite his disciples into a personal relationship. He was not saying, go this way to find truth and life. Instead, he was saying, I am the way and the truth and the life. The call of Jesus was come to me. Find your rest for your souls in me. Find joy in your heart from me. Find meaning in your life through me. But we have missed this. 
In so many ways and in so many settings, we have relegated Christianity to just another choice in the cafeteria line of world religions. Slowly and subtly, we have let Christianity devolve into just another set of rules, regulations, practices, and principles to observe. Hindus bathe in the Ganges River. Christians get baptized in the church. Muslims go to worship on Fridays. Christians go to worship on Sunday. Buddhists recite mantras. Christians sing choruses. Sikhs read their holy book and share with the needy. Christians read their Bibles and give to the poor. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm definitely not saying that we should not be baptized, sing and worship, read our Bibles or serve the poor. But I am saying, and don't miss this, but I am saying that if we are not careful, any one of us can do all of those things completely apart from Jesus. And there's the challenge this morning, friends. I wonder if there's someone in here this morning who would say, That I have been doing all of those things for any number of weeks, months, or years. But I don't know that I could ever identify a time where I heard the message from the scriptures, follow me. And I submitted my life, repented of my sins, and said, Father, I'm with you for all the days of my life through your son, Jesus. Could it, be, could it be that you are very steeply religious? Could it be that you're very experienced with church, but you've never surrendered to the authority of Jesus Christ? We commit to him in relationship. And then out of that relationship, we submit to him in obedience. We submit to him in obedience. Jesus says, follow me, and the text says, they immediately left their nets and their father and followed him. They didn't say, let me go back home and get my affairs in order. They didn't say, let me clean up the areas of my life where I need to stop doing certain things. They didn't say, let me stop certain. They just dropped their nets and they followed Jesus. And they may not have understood everything. I guarantee you they didn't because these guys blew it numerous times in the scriptures. They didn't understand everything that they were getting themselves into. I mean, these were the guys who prohibited the children from coming to Jesus, and so Jesus rebuked them. In another instance, people were walking disobediently before God, and they just looked at Jesus and basically said, you should just zap them right here and take them out. And Jesus rebukes them. They're constantly putting their foots in their mouths, their feet in their mouths. They're constantly making mistakes. They had no idea what everything meant. But what they knew is that Jesus Christ, the authoritative, extraordinary, sovereign Lord of the universe, called them by name. And that was enough. And they said, I'm with you. And they drop everything and follow him. They may not have understood everything, but notice that obedience flows from relationship. We don't obey out of rules or legalism or performance. We obey out of relationship with the person, Jesus Christ. And then what that relationship does is that relationship then fuels our obedience. And then that obedience fuels our passion. Did you hear that? We have a relationship with Jesus, and that relationship fuels my obedience. 
I obey because I want to honor my father. Obedience flows from the relationship. But then as I obey, the more I obey Jesus, the more I do what Jesus has commanded, the more I participate in what Jesus has given me to participate in, the greater my passion grows for that which he's called me to do. That should encourage us today if you're here going, I don't always feel this. Anybody else with me? I don't always feel a passion for Jesus. Keep obeying. Keep obeying. Keep obeying out of that relationship. And what should happen over weeks and months and years and decades of our lives is that our passion will match our obedience. MacArthur rightly points out, passion came only after understanding and obedience. They developed compassion, these disciples. They developed compassion, humility, understanding, patience, and love as they learned from and obeyed Jesus. I love this line. Obedience is the spark that lights the fire of passion. That's worth repeating. Obedience is the spark that lights the fire of passion. So the disciples have shown us the word abandon, that we have found something in the gospel of Jesus Christ worth losing everything else for. And they've showed us the word authority, that we have encountered someone worth surrendering everything to. But then lastly, we see the word action, that we have now been tasked with something worth telling everybody about. We have been tasked with something worth telling everybody about. Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now notice what the task is and what it's not. The task is to fish for men. 21st century translation based on the first century language is to fish for people. You're fishermen? Great. You're not going to catch fish anymore. You're going to go catch people for my namesake and my gospel. Now, he doesn't say, follow me, and then find the church with the best worship band and fog machines and cool special effects. He doesn't say, follow me, and go to as many Christian worship services and concerts and conferences as possible. He doesn't say, follow me, and listen to as many podcasts as you possibly can every day of the week. Now, are podcasts a bad thing? Absolutely not. Should we listen to Christian music? Sure, if you like it. We're going to sing that in Sunday, on Sunday mornings. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't attach yourself to a good, relevant, gospel-preaching church. But the reality is, we could do all of those things and still not do the one thing that Jesus has commissioned us to do. And it's to fish for men and women. Friends, we have inherited a Christian subculture in America that is so radically self-centered, that is so focused on how can I have the best Christian experience? How can I grow in my relationship with Jesus? How can my family be blessed? Even our own Christian life is defined by how Jesus has saved me and died for my sins. I don't want for a moment to minimize the personal nature of the gospel. I don't want to minimize it for a moment, the, the personal aspect of a relationship with Christ. 
But we're not simply saved from our sins. We are also saved to action. We are also saved to a mission. The entire basis of our salvation is to engage our world with the message, Jesus saves, Jesus can save you because Jesus has saved me. The entire basis of our Christian message is follow me because I am following Jesus. The whole message of the Christian Bible is this. I have been radically blessed so that I might be a blessing to the world, to my neighbors, my friends, and the nations. You see, this is where our approach to Christian discipleship affects our view of Christian mission. If we're simply the spectator, if we're just simply looking for how the church or how Christianity can just best suit my needs, then we're going to have a very spectator approach to Christianity. We have a very spectator approach to Christian discipleship. But if we will expand our approach to Christian discipleship and see the radical call of Jesus that he placed on these first century disciples in their lives then we may have a much wider and a more comprehensive view of my place in Christian mission and Christian action. David Platt goes on to say, a superficial approach to Christianity always results in a spectator mentality in the church. And I know that there are those of you this morning, and I say this with love as a pastor, I know there are those of you today who are simply spectators. You're here because maybe it's a relevant place to be, or maybe it's because of the cool musicians, and maybe it's because of the, the loudness with which I'm teaching today. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's simply because a friend has you here. But I want you to know that at Mill City, this is our heart. We're not interested in amassing a crowd of Christian spectators. It's just simply not our mission it's not our vision. It's not our goal. Our passion, our vision, and our mission is to train disciples who will then be disciple makers. We, we want every person sitting here week after week investing their lives in others for the sake of the gospel. We just want that. But the tragic news is in the 21st century, some researchers have estimated that 95% of all Christians have never led another person to Christ. I want you to think about that staggering reality this morning. 95% of all Christians have never led another person to Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, if that's our stat... Are we just going to sit here and be okay with that? If you are one of those 95%, could I say lovingly, like, are you really okay with that? Don't you want your life and your family and your vocation and your money and your career and everything that you have access to, don't you want all of that to count for something so much greater than just yourself? To encounter Jesus and not make disciples is like a parent who bought groceries and cooked a meal for himself but didn't feed his child. To encounter Jesus and not make disciples 
is like a, a doctor who has found the cure to cancer and then went and hid it for himself and never shared it with the world. But scripturally speaking, here's the kingdom's physic. Here's the kingdom's physic this morning. It's this. It's come and see and go and tell. It's come and see and go and tell. We see this all throughout the scriptures. Let me just show you four quick places, okay? In Luke 2.20, the angels told the shepherds, go see the baby born in the manger, the savior of the world, right? In Luke 2.20, the scriptures tell us that the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. In John chapter 4, a passage we're going to look at in the next couple of weeks, a Samaritan woman, a woman who had lived in sin with other men. Jesus Christ encounters her at the well. And so in John chapter 4, verses 28 and 29, it says this, The woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. And for a woman of her ill repute, that would have been a really scary proposition. Mark chapter 1, after he, he, after he heals uh, a, a man with leprosy, this man went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. Mark chapter 3, verse 14, he appointed the 12 disciples and it says that he appointed them for this reason so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. Let me ask you a question this morning. Has Jesus Christ changed your life? Has he? I guess not. Has Jesus Christ changed your life? Has Jesus Christ done something crazy and miraculous and radical in your life? It's time to stop keeping it to yourself and go tell the world about it. It's the kingdom's physic, something this great and something this honorable and something this radical that happens to us. We don't keep it inside. All throughout the scriptures, the scriptures tell us we go and tell the world about it. Brothers and sisters, the world is hungry. They are thirsty. Your family, your friends, your roommates, your coworkers tomorrow speak of the miraculous, loving encounter you have had with the sovereign Lord of the universe. Jesus has saved us for action because we have been, we have been tasked with something worth telling everybody about. Here's my question this morning. Will you follow Jesus? And I don't mean just following Jesus and attaching yourself to a local church so you can have a Christian version of the American dream. If that's your goal in life, I'm going to tell you long term, you're going to be frustrated at Mill City Church because you're going to hear messages like this all the time. I don't mean just follow Jesus and better yourself and have moral improvement and buy yourself a Bible and listen to a Chris Tomlin CD. What I'm asking you is, will you follow Jesus? And in order to do that this morning, I'm going to walk through this with you. Will you count the cost of discipleship? There are so many more things that we could say about this passage that we looked at this morning. But I think that we could at least sum it up this way. That there's a cost of discipleship. There's a cost to following Jesus. And for many people, they have literally given their lives to follow this gospel and to surrender to this Savior, to this Lord. And it doesn't always look that way. 
It doesn't mean that you have to go sell your house today and give every penny and give it all away. But if he calls you to that, remember that you found something worth losing all of that for. I want you to know that there is a cost to following Jesus. It costs you your comfort. It costs you relationships sometimes. It costs you a lot of money. It costs you energy. It costs you discipline. And I would go so far as to say this today. If you have a faith in Jesus Christ that hasn't cost you anything, you probably have a faith in Jesus that hasn't saved your soul. Because when we read the scriptures like we've read today, discipleship is costly. And so this morning I wonder, would you count the cost of discipleship? And for some of you, it means taking that bold step today and confessing that you aren't what you think you are. Even with as much Christian experience you have, there could be such freedom And you coming today say, I thought I had it, but I've had it wrong. And boy, we would love to have that conversation with you. Count the cost of discipleship, but I want you to also count the cost of non-discipleship. This is where I want to help you see that your life is not just your life. That your life is also for the sake of others. You see, by... Choosing non-discipleship by just pursuing your Christian version of the American dream, by just keeping one foot in the kingdom and one foot out, you're actually costing a lot of those around you. Because you see, as you count the cost and you follow Jesus and you enter into that relationship, now your life and the gospel can be for the sake of someone else's life and the gospel. And I want you to think about for all those who are being so silent today. And saying that I don't have enough training, I don't have enough reading, I don't have enough seminary or whatever it is. That's a lie. If you've been saved and you have the scriptures, you have a story to tell. You have the gospel to tell. For those of you who are keeping silent and you think you're not ready and you're you're being very tepid. You haven't counted the cost of non-discipleship. Because my question is simply this. If not you, then who? Isn't that our society? We just assume someone else is going to do it. But if 95% aren't doing it, that's not good statistics for the 4 to 5 billion people in the world who don't follow Jesus. So if not you, who? And if not now, when? Consider the cost of non-discipleship for you because you're going to miss out on so many blessings that God would do through you otherwise. Consider the cost of non-discipleship for your city, for your campus, right? For the local spheres in which you operate. There's going to be a great cost for you not pursuing Jesus and doing what he's tasked you to do. And also count the cost of non-discipleship for the world. Today, there are billions of people who live in unreached people groups who don't even have access to the gospel in their native tongue like you or I have. Consider the cost for them. Because if this church, if these followers of Jesus don't take radical steps in their faith in Jesus, how are those people ever going to get it? You see, our lives matter. Not just for us, but also for our city, for our campus, and for the world. 
this morning, I hope you've seen that in the ordinary, average lives of a handful of Judean fishermen, Jesus interrupted that average, ordinary day. And he did something extraordinary through their lives. And this morning, you may think, man, I'm just average. I'm ordinary. You may have a really good view of yourself and you just think, you know, I'm just a lowly wretch at the feet of Jesus. It's a good place to be in. But I want you to know that he used these lowly wretches and these average, ordinary, unlearned fishermen to literally turn the world upside down. And over the course of 2,000 years, the gospel of Jesus Christ made it from the streets of Jerusalem to South Mississippi where I heard it and received it and to the streets of New England where you've heard it. God's good. He'll do something so much bigger with your life than you could ever do on your own. Will you come tell somebody today what God is doing in your heart so that we can walk alongside of you and point you towards Jesus? Let me pray for you. Father, we come before you today recognizing that your grace is enough. It is sufficient. There was nothing good in these disciples that you should ever have taken notice of their lives. Just as there is nothing good or praiseworthy in our lives that you should have taken notice of ours. But Father, we thank you by your grace that just as you initiated and interrupted the lives of these Judean fishermen, that you are interrupting the lives of us today. Father, today I pray that you would speak your gospel into the hearts of those who are listening today. I pray that you would, that you would just slay us at your altar and that we would slay our sin, surrender our all, lose ourselves for the sake of truly finding our lives in you. And Lord, I pray that there'd be no regrets and I pray that you would use us to do greater things than we've ever seen before because we took those first steps today. Break us of our pride. Break us of our idolatry. Change our lives today like you did Peter's and Andrew's and James's and John's. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.